And welcome to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. I'm Tanya Bevan. I wanted to, right off the bat, touch a little bit back into our reason why we're making this podcast. I don't think we've really um, encapsulated that in a little while. But for those of you who have never tuned into the show before, one of our main objectives with this podcast is being able to create a space for and contribute to the ongoing conversation about mental health. The fact that mental health still to this day has a certain stigma around it makes it difficult for anybody really to open up and and have those conversations, which are much needed if we're going to be able to heal the mental illnesses or neurodivergencies or conditions that we're dealing with in our society, which are ever pervasive with the influences of media, which is how media fits into it, we need to be able to learn how to talk about it. So we're creating that space and we're talking to other people who are also a part of that space already or a part of the world of technology that contributes to our ability to shape this ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we are talking to Chelsea Riccio. She is a communications manager for Healthy Minds Canada. She's talking about her personal experiences with depression, anxiety, abusive relationships, bullying. Yeah, she actually touches on this idea of how oversharing actually ended up being professionally beneficial for her. Mm. Now, she works in the mental health sector, working with Healthy Minds Canada. And what I found super interesting is the fact that because we're looking to ameliorate our conversational skills about mental health and how we deal with it, how we better ourselves, there is a stigma that breeds almost a negative connotation around the idea of sharing what your mental health status is with Mm -hmm. friends, family, professionals, with your boss, with other employees, people in your professional realm. So it was super interesting to hear Chelsea talk about the fact that because she was so open about her mental health issues and and struggles and, and journey, she ended up getting a job out of it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I think we all need to be a little more open. It's funny, I saw this meme the other day, and it's it's great because you're seeing a lot of these mental health awareness memes going around, but it really stood out to me because it was just like a picture of this guy and this other guy's talking, and the one guy was like, it's all in your head, and then the next picture was the guy ripping his head off and being like, yeah, it's all in my head. You know, know, I just, it really, like, it spoke to me because it's like how, yeah, it is in my head, but how do I get out of my head, you know? And his solution was to remove his head. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why it stood out to me so much, but it just... Because it's extreme. It, it, yeah. I like extreme things, but you know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of people... Yeah, a lot of people don't, because we don't share our emotions, people are like, oh, it's just, it's just in your head. It's just in your head. So Mm -hmm. people... There is a stigma about sharing because you're going to be told it's just in your head and like, oh, it's fixable. Everything's going to be okay. But yeah, it is. But But how? how? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if we don't, we, 
we're at a point where we're starting to become more comfortable to talk about mental health. Yeah. And, and when we talk about it, we are able to learn how to deal with whatever it is. If you're just, maybe you don't have a mental illness, maybe you don't have a condition that is uh, depression or anxiety, but we all have struggles. And if mm-hmm. we don't know how to deal with those struggles, yeah. it will develop into something more difficult to deal with. Yeah. So if we hit a roadblock and we don't have tools to deal with it, even as an actor, you know, you, from my experience, I've, I, I remember when I experienced taking on a, a role that was psychologically very dark, very different from what my day-to-day life looked like and I was very afraid to take it because I didn't have the tools at the time. I was very young to the business and I didn't know how I was going to step back out of it. Right. So if you don't already have the tools to compartmentalize and and define what works for you, what is healthy, what is the pathway out of a negative thinking pattern, yeah. out of a character, then yeah, your your immediate instinct, especially if you have, say you have an anxiety attack, you have something severe hit you. Yep. You rip your own head off. This this cartoon stipulates that that is that is what it feels like. You you don't know what to do. You don't have the coping mechanisms. So you just want to find if that's what you're saying. It's in my head. Then I will rip, rip my own my head, head off. Yeah. Uh, and Wouldn't that be nice? This is everything. <laughs> yeah. And the unfortunate truth is that suicide rates are at an all time high, and there the depression rates in our society are. Well, yeah. Depression, depression rates are what three like, to three to six million in Canada alone. So that's like one to nine. One out of every nine Canadians has some sort of mental illness, whether it be depression, anxiety. Yeah. On average, Western populations have a percentage rate of 10 to 20% what? for depression. Holy cow. It's it's in, it's crazy. Crazy. So, oh, that's, yeah, weird. But not, actually, I just thought in my head, like, one out of nine people. So that means in a group of your circle of friends, one of those people has depression or anxiety or some sort of neurological displacement in their brain. Disorder? Disorder. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that you use the word crazy because Chelsea and I talk about that. Uh, We'll get into it, but you know, it's just this this word that um, also has a stigma attached to it. It really does. I know that we're all trying to work towards conversation that doesn't include the word stigma, but I still haven't found a word to replace that. Yeah, and I remember in one of our earlier episodes, we said we were going to stop using the word stigma, but it definitely hasn't happened. Yeah, I think we're racking up a a tally in this episode, too. And if we're playing a drinking game called stigma, we be drunk. (laughs) Cut that out. (laughs) Um, I mean, language has an incredible effect on our understandings of the world, of oh, our understandings of ourselves. Yeah. And Chelsea talks a little bit about that from a personal standpoint, from her experiences in high school, from um, her experiences with gaslighting, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's an abusive tactic that somebody can use on you to convince you that your perception of reality is inaccurate. Now, being able to trust your perception of reality, yeah. to trust your instincts not only what we need to survive as human beings we need to yeah. be able to trust our own judgment but as actors that's that's what we do that is our, yeah that's, that's, that's all we do we we learn what character to character 
these different patterns of behavior, these different yeah. sorts of choices that these characters make, or I suppose it would be the actors that are making these choices for so the characters. So you have to, to have that instinct. Mm-hmm. It is those choices, those behavioral patterns that define that character. Yep. Evolutionary speaking, it protects us. Being able to trust our judgment. Um, I was talking about this actually yesterday. I was Skyping with my sister, and we are talking about judgment. We are talking about this idea of... Um, I think it was Seth Godin that uses the example of a herd of gazelle out in the <laughs> open that, you know, if if one gazelle hears a rustle in the bushes and immediately pops its head up because it recognizes the rustling in the bushes as a sign of danger. Right. He might not have already seen the lion or tiger or whatever is perching, waiting to pounce on them, mm-hmm. its prey, but but it's a it's a fight or flight reaction in the amygdala and when one gazelle perks up the rest of the gazelle are going to automatically react the rest of the gazelle may not have heard the rustling in the bushes but they also recognize this behavioral pattern from the gazelle that right. if they if they didn't react if they all didn't have that that group mentality to sense surrounding danger they wouldn't be able to what am i trying to say that's what's going to cause them to run away and save their own lives. Right. So it's instincts. It's being able to trust those things that we don't fully understand, that we aren't, that we don't fully communicate or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or define for mm-hmm. ourselves. It's that emotional reaction. Yep. So super dangerous if somebody else starts screwing with that for you because your perception of reality ends up being difficult to, to trust. When somebody gaslights you, it makes it more difficult for you to trust your own judgment, your own instincts in the world. Yes, and going with that, I mean, going to the whole gaslighting thing, especially someone with a mental illness, a lot of that mental illness can distort reality, and being gaslighted distorts your own reality as well. And it's, it's I mean, how many people gaslight themselves? Can you gaslight yourself? I think you can. Well, Chelsea does talk about this idea of being a victim to ourselves. Right. This idea of being our own worst enemies. I think we can all have a testament to that. Um, Yeah, as actors, we, I guess we call it being in your head. You know, if you get too in your head, you get super over-analytical about what choices you're making Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as that character. You're taken out of it. You're not living it. You're not... You're not just living in the now and being that character and, and expressing a moment of reality. Mm-hmm. It's weird to think of... It's weird to think of this idea of reality, you know, um, what actually exists in your world versus what we as actors have to construct for ourselves. One of my favorite things going to read the reality thing is something Louis Bomander, yeah. great Toronto actor, coach. Acting is dreaming while awake. Mm-hmm. So what is reality? Like, that's, I don't know. I love thinking about the differences between dreams, the dream world, and the real world, quote-unquote. Yeah. Because... Who's to say that the dream world is not real? If reality is just 
our own understanding of the world, which is different from somebody else's, Mm -hmm. you know, memories are inherently inaccurate because we will all remember a certain incident from our own standpoint, from a very different point of view from one another. And, and that's, that's all dependent upon our own experiences and our own brains, synaptic transactions, the neurons firing. So what we see in our dreams and what we're experiencing, who's to say that that is not real? Or even I saw this thing. I'm always talking about memes. One today was, um, <laughs> have you ever had a dream so vivid that you wake up angry or sad oh or my happy? God. You know, like... I remember in grade six one time... How is it not real? In grade six, one of my best friends, when we got to school, I was mad at her this like for, for an entire day. And I wouldn't tell her why I was mad. Like, just it was one of those fights where I'm like, "You should know. You know what you did." (laughs) Yeah, like no communication at all. Just you should know. And it turned out to have been a dream, but it was so vivid that I was still mad. And I, I just didn't even understand. Like, when we finally sat down and had a conversation about it, I realized it was a dream. Like, okay, that's a little too far. <laughs> when you start, yeah. like, Or, like, you're blend. just hanging out with your girlfriends, and then you're like, remember that time? And, like, that never happened. You're like, oh, yeah, like, no, that was a dream. It did in my mind. Who's to know? What if it actually did happen? They just don't remember. Some, right, yeah, we can't remember you know, everything. Memories are inaccurate. Listen, you should remember my dreams. <laughs> that's your fault. Do you know that I don't know too much about it, and I think we should look more, but apparently, I think it was either China or Japan made some mechanism that can actually allow you to view your dreams there is technology i also don't remember where this is based out of but there's technology that can um uh, create a visual representation of your dreams now it's not it's not cinematic it's not crystal clear Uh, from my understanding it's basically it looks like shadows just just faint shapes but it's actually a technology that is tracking the chemical reactions in your brain. It's tracking your brain patterns. And, That's so interesting. And by, I think, I think it's the way that it works is that it basically pairs up what, what these chemical reactions look like when you are seeing something in the real world mm-hmm. um, so that it can recreate based on those brain patterns what you might be seeing in your dreams, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I wish that that technology was available for us because my dreams are so good. I just wish that people could see them. (laughs) Oh, me too. Or they'd question my life, but... Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yay, dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Just spat on myself. Yummy. Um... Oh, God, there's so much about this interview that I would love to just riff off of, but I feel, let's, let's just, just let's yeah. just go into it. Let's hop into it, because she does a really great job of talking from a personal standpoint of everything that we've been talking about all day, too. So, here we go, into the interview. Hi, I'm Chelsea Riccio. I am the communications manager for the mental health nonprofit Healthy Minds Canada. Um, I also started a blog last year called Speak Out where young adults can share their stories of mental illness, relationship troubles, whatever it is that they're going through. Um, And I have my own blog myself. I like to refer to myself as a mental health advocate, blogger, and cat owner. (laughs) Um, That's what it says at the top of my website. Um, And yeah, I 
do speeches and things like that on my own personal experiences with depression, anxiety, emotionally abusive relationships, that type of stuff. So yeah, that's me. Is your personal experience the reason why you got into this line of work? Absolutely. Um, How I got this job is kind of funny because on paper, I don't look qualified for it. Um, <laughs> that's probably not a good So there's hope for other people. Like yes, there, there is hope for other people. Um, so when I was in university, I started this mental health club. It was called Active Minds at the University of Toronto. And I wrote an article for the school paper, The Varsity, that was about my experience with bullying in high school and how it affected me in university. And Katie, who is the executive director of Healthy Minds Canada, somehow read this article, liked it, and reached out to me saying that she'd like to meet up with me to work with me in some capacity. So she wasn't offering me a job or anything, but they at the time were starting this video project where they wanted to interview people about their personal stories. So they did that with me, and then after that I said, hey, do you have any internships? Um, and they said, well, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, we could use someone for the summer. So I started interning with them over the summer. And then Katie liked me enough to hire me part-time and then full-time once I graduated. So that is how I got here. That's amazing. Yes. So oversharing can be good for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Career-wise, yes. yes. <laughs> Not just personally and emotionally, <laughs> but professionally. <laughs> so how many years have you been or how long have you been with the company? In total, including my time as an intern, um, close to two and a half years. That's wonderful. Yeah. And um, so you said that you have a personal website as well as a separate blog. Is that separate blog part of Healthy Minds Canada? Um, well, Healthy Minds Canada does have a blog, which I do run also. But no, Speak Out is not affiliated with um, HMC. That's kind of something I did on my own. And still run separately on your own. Yeah, and then I have my own personal blog also. Speak Out is something that, like I said, I started it last year. And right now I'm kind of in the process of looking for someone to take it over because I don't really have the time to do it anymore. Hmm. but for those listening, looking yeah, for yeah, yeah. an opportunity. If you're, if you're good at editing and writing and you like mental health, hit me up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because I don't, I don't want to just shut it down. It's a project I really believe in. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, three blocks is a little much. <laughs> Are you the only writer on it? No. Um, so Speak Out has a bunch of different writers. A lot of them have kind of... Um, dropped off the grid for various reasons. A lot of them are students, so they get busy, that type of stuff. Um, But yeah, as a result of having so many different people write on it, it's pretty diverse in terms of topics that you can find on there. They're all related to mental health? Most of them are mental health related. Um, Like I said, there is some stuff about relationships and other social issues. Um, We had one person write a really, really good post on gaslighting. Um, which is an emotionally abusive tactic, and that, I think, was really, really enlightening for a lot of people. I actually just learned what gaslighting is uh, a couple of months ago. I had no idea. It, for some reason, triggered me to think of a part of Vancouver called Gastown. That's <laughs> like, actually what I always think of, too. I've never been there, but... <laughs> I don't understand why it's such a strong association for me in my mind, but I didn't know that it was... A, like a, a tactic of emotional abuse. 
uh, actually, if you could explain, give a brief definition of what it is for those who might not be aware of what it is. Mm -hmm. So gaslighting is basically when someone convinces you that your perception of reality isn't accurate. So, for example, I had a situation where I could tell that my boyfriend in high school was not being honest with me and that he was, you know, sneaking around and doing super sketchy things and I was hearing other people say things that were going on and whenever I would try to confront him about this, he'd basically be like, no, you're crazy, you're interpreting things all wrong, it's all in your head. Um, I love you so much. Why are you doing this to me? Like you're making me feel so bad that type of stuff um, Obviously can take many forms. That's just how it appeared to me But yeah, it's basically someone else undermining your own Thoughts and trying to replace them with their own View of things like what they want you to think and that word crazy which comes up uh Regularly in, in conversations about mental health, I find um, the discussion of what it means and how it can be harmful when we use it. Uh, how do you feel about the term crazy? My perception of that word is a little bit, um, I guess, it's kind of an unpopular opinion in the mental health space because I actually don't have a problem with it unless it's applied to a person. So I will never call a person crazy, but I'll often find myself saying like, oh my God, the weather is so crazy today, because to me, that's not offensive. I'm not talking about anybody. <laughs> um, but normally when I'm trying to advocate for you know changes in language, I don't say that because that's kind of confusing for people. <laughs> um, so you know, my, my blanket response is usually just like, it's a bad word, don't say it. Um, but that's how I use it in my own everyday life um yeah but it's definitely not a nice thing to be called um granted when people were using that word to describe me no one actually knew that I had a mental illness and I didn't know either I don't think that anyone would actually say that to me now um but it's still you know obviously it, it makes you feel like your own feelings are not valid and that you can't trust yourself. Right. Which brings it back to the gaslighting. And if you're already unsure about what your feelings are or whether or not they are quote-unquote valid, then having somebody convince you that they're not can lead to absolutely problematic situations. Yeah. <laughs> you said that uh, you weren't aware that you had a mental illness what, when you were in uh, this relationship or in school, and what's your journey like coming to an understanding that you do have one? Yeah, um, so when I was in high school, I was a super shy, weird kid. <laughs> um, I didn't have a lot of friends. I had one group of friends that I made in elementary school, and I just stuck with them for years. They kind of branched out and made other friends, even though they would still come back and hang out with me and each other as well. But I was never able to do that. And now, looking back, I have social anxiety and I can now see that that is why. Um, but at the time, I kind of just, it manifested as me not wanting to talk to anybody who I didn't already know. I was scared. I was convinced that they were just going to make fun of me. 
or I convinced myself that I was better than them. I'd be like, oh, like, she's a, she's like a cheerleader. She's so dumb. Like, I'm not going to like her. Like, I'm way smarter than them anyway. I don't need other people, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I really thought that, but to make myself feel better, those are the kinds of things I would tell myself. Like and, defense mechanisms? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was never really able to make other friends. And... Um, also, my thoughts would often just stray down these really negative paths. Like, I was always that person who jumped to the worst possible conclusion. So, when I was in this relationship, it was incredibly easy to take advantage of me because I really was blowing things out of proportion. But that didn't mean that the things I was upset about didn't exist. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, so, yeah, I was an incredibly easy target. Um, for various reasons. I was also really, really open about my emotions and everything I was feeling. Um, I've always been that way. I, I don't have, like, very much of a filter or, like, a guard up in any way. Um, so, yeah. With those that you are already close with or with anybody when you're speaking about with your emotions? Anybody. Yeah, like, obviously I'm not going to be like, hey, guess what, I'm Chelsea, here's my life story, like, unprompted. But if a stranger on the street asks me a question, like, I would answer. <laughs> Just very honest and open. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't have a problem. I'm not ashamed of anything in my life. Um, yeah, and I guess in high school, that's not really a great thing to be, <laughs> necessarily. Um, so I definitely got bullied, um, but... I think, uh, and this is my personal opinion, but I think that um, I, I love, I, I personally love people who are open about their emotions and feelings and wanting to talk about that side of humanity, uh, because I, too, uh, I'm similar in the same regards, but I'm not sure if that is a common uh, experience in uh, amongst high schoolers or um, teenagers in general, so... I, I agree. Maybe it's it's difficult to be that person who loves to share and wants to share and wants to connect in those ways when a lot of kids are, I, I see, especially these days, sometimes emotionally guarded and don't want to open up about those sorts of conversations. Do you, do you, would you say that you've unearthed some reasons why maybe teenagers are emotionally guarded in that way, working with this company or even from your own personal experiences? Um, well, I've, I've tried to put myself in the shoes of the people who bullied me. My, my friend group, who I've been with for so many years, they kind of just shut me out and completely excluded me at one point in time. And I guess the more I think about it, it just seems like they're obviously trying to protect themselves and they want to have fun in their life. They want to make things as easy as possible for themselves and they've got their own problems to deal with. They don't want to have to be bothered with anybody else's problems. And this is a completely rational, logical way of thinking. But to me, like, that's not something that occurs to me. Like, if someone comes to me with a problem, my thought is not like, okay, do I listen to them or not? It's, okay, I have to listen to this person now. Like, oh, wow. it's not... I have to take on somebody's, somebody else's... Yeah, like, I... To me, like, that's, like, my moral duty um but I can totally see why other people don't want to be that for other people and they don't 
want to think about situations too complexly. So, for example, if somebody decided to tell them that I was a crazy bitch, which they did, <laughs> they, they would be inclined to just believe them because that's easier than investigating further. And I find a lot of, um, before you come to figure out how to judge people on your own terms, uh, a lot of kids will take the words of their peers, will, will judge a book by their cover before uh, learning how much diversity is out there and how everybody can have different situations and, and yet we are still all one, we are still all the same. It's funny that there, there seems to be, um, like when you talk about being very open and, and yet being shut out by others and uh, I'm assuming that that is something that is, you know, that can hurt you emotionally. What would you say is, if there is um, any such thing, what would you say is the fine balance between being open and wanting to share emotions and have conversations with people and listening to other people's emotional stress without taking on their emotional stress or keeping yourself at least guarded enough to keep your, yourself protected emotionally? Um, for me, I have one thing that I only tell people when I'm, like, really close with them, and for me, um, so for example, I tell someone everything except this one thing and then they hurt me, I have that emotional safety net of being like, well, at least they, at least I didn't tell them that one thing, they don't, they don't have all of me, oh. you know, and um, that's something that works for me. Um, but also it's just kind of, you know, using common sense. Like if someone opens up to you, then maybe it's safe to open up to them. And if you find yourself opening up to someone and they're not reciprocating, maybe give it a rest for a while or whatever. That's definitely a balance that I'm still working on. Um, but in terms of like taking on other people's problems without, um, burdening yourself, too much. I think the key is to just keep reminding yourself you can't fix it, you can't fix it, you can't fix it. Even if you were Superman, you could not fix it. Um, hmm. Again, when I was in high school, a lot of things happened to me in high school. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pivotal, it's a, yeah, it's a pivotal point, I think, for many people. Yeah, um, my boyfriend was cutting himself, and I was the only person that he would talk to about it, and I was like, okay, I have to fix this problem. Like, he, I love him, he says he loves me, so that should be enough to fix this, right? Like, love cures everything. Love is like this magical miracle cure. Um, but no, <laughs> <laughs> that's not how that works. Um, a, a person, like it's a cliche, but a person really does need to be ready and want to take the next steps and sometimes talking to someone is a really important first step. Like, maybe that's all they're ready for at that moment, but you just listening to them and being compassionate and, you know, gently encouraging them along the way can be, be way more helpful than you think. And really, that's all your role should be, unless you're, like, their parent or something. Um, just listen, be there for them, check up on them every once in a while, make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who is also a psychotherapist, and um, so as as much as 
we never speak about any specific situation. I have heard her talk about what the end of a day of, of seeing a plethora of clients is like for her emotionally. We'll meet up for a coffee afterwards. And it's so interesting to think that even just being there for somebody and listening to them, knowing that you can't do anything to fix them necessarily, that it's not your job to make those changes in somebody's life for them, um, that it can still be emotionally exhausting, that it actually depletes you to sit and listen to somebody. Um, and for myself, being in the entertainment industry, being an actor, I find I, you know, I'll equivocate it in, in the conversation to taking on a role that um, requires to put myself into somebody else's mindset that might be either uh, very different from mine or somebody who is dealing with for instance, a mental illness, I played a character like that. And my experience at the end of playing a character with a mental illness was I, had, I forgot a lot of my days on set. I forgot a lot of my preparation work. I actually mentally repressed it. I just literally couldn't remember some of the days. And people would be reminding me of some things that happened on set. And I was flabbergasted. <laughs> like, I don't remember any of it. Um, have you ever, uh, or I guess with the work that you do or in your personal life, have you ever um, come across somebody who has repressed some of their experiences either in high school or just from their past, repressed some of their past experiences? And what's your, what's your I guess, learning from seeing those situations? Um, I haven't really encountered that, surprisingly. I do have a friend who has said that she may have repressed the memories from her childhood, but she wasn't ready to open up to me about them, so I don't really know hmm. anything about it. Um, but I think for me even, like, it's not even that there are things that I have repressed, but there are things that I remembered inaccurately. <laughs> that um, because I was you know with my depression and anxiety I was always so focused on this having this victim mentality towards myself like I was always a you know sad pathetic victim and I was helpless and everyone was so mean to me but um, this is just an example I I have those like Facebook memories turned on um, and one oh you can turn them off I didn't know you yeah, could turn, you them can turn them off. <laughs> sometimes they're fun for me, and sometimes I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, go away. Yeah, um, I find them fun. But one day, there was one, and it was like, you know, on this day, like seven years ago, um, this person wrote in your wall, and it was one of the, you know, cool girls from my high school who wrote on my Facebook wall saying, hey, we're having this party after prom, um, let me know if you want to go, here's my number, like, whatever, that type of stuff. So she was including me. I think she probably sent this message to probably, like, everyone in our grade, but, like, she was being inclusive. I, I could have taken advantage of that opportunity, but I can guarantee you I probably thought that she was making fun of me, and that's why I don't, I didn't remember it. Mm. Um, so... Mind is a powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah, there were people who were nice to me that, like, now, many years later, I can now remember them. And I'm like, oh, that person who I thought was being sarcastic, 
probably wasn't abuse. <laughs> they probably were just trying to be nice for the sake of it. Like, who knew? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the mind is definitely very powerful. Um, one thing that I like to say is that mental illness can distort your perspective on reality way more than you think. <laughs> well, right. You're not aware that your mind is doing this to your perception of your reality at yeah. that given moment. Yeah. Even when you are sometimes, like now, I obviously know what I'm living with, but sometimes still there will be, there will be moments where I do recognize it. Like, okay, I'm just thinking this because of my anxiety. But then there will be times where I still don't recognize it until like way later. So, yeah. you know, it's... Who knows? <laughs> you say that um, you used to have a mindset of being the victim, thinking poor me, and, and that was kind of the way that you were approaching a lot of your situations throughout high school, uh, in, in your younger years. Do you, do you, would you say that you still see yourself that way, um, or, or are just aware of it, or do you have a completely different perception of yourself, the way that you carry yourself in life now? Um... I think on bad days, that mentality does come back. Um, Often, I'm easily triggered by experiences that remind me of high school. So, for example, last month I did a workshop at an event with high schoolers in a community center, and they were being really rowdy and disrespectful and whatever, you know, as high school students are sometimes. I Like, logically, I knew it wasn't personal to me. But immediately I started thinking, oh my god, I'm always going to be the loser. Like, no one's ever going to respect me. Like, I'm just that same girl I was, you know, so many years ago. Um, And a couple days later I felt better. But, yeah, sometimes I do get pulled back down into that. But um, most days, no, I don't see myself as a victim. If anything, I see myself as a victim to myself. (laughs) Can you explain that? (laughs) Like, I feel like I kind of wasted a lot of years of my life and, um, almost ruined my own life in a way because I let my mental illnesses tell me that those negative situations that I was placed in was all that I was and all that my life would ever be. And, I did not allow myself to think of ways that I could put myself in other situations or do other things that were productive with my time. And I spent way too long in relationships with people who I should not have been with, who didn't treat me well. Um, And all of these are things that I did to myself. Nobody was stopping me from breaking up with these people or, you know, going and making other friends, or Mm -hmm. at least, you know, spending all my time at home, like, learning a new skill instead of, like, playing on the internet, you know, like, I could have done so much, but I didn't because of my mental illnesses, and that's shitty. (laughs) Well, but it's also easier said than done to say, okay, I'm not going to worry about this or think about this, I'm just going to focus on my knitting or do it or take up another activity and my mind will be magically focused on that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's easier to, to say that than, than to do it. Would you say that you still look back on those years as a waste of time? Yeah, that's actually a relatively new mentality that oh. I only developed like this year. Okay. Um, up until this year, I still saw myself as that 
sad, pathetic little victim. Um, yeah, obviously I don't blame myself because I understand why it happened. But I do think that rather than placing all the blame on everybody else who was so mean, um, some of the blame definitely falls on me as well. Or rather, those mental illnesses that are a part of me, that, that part of me was also at fault. Um, now though, I don't necessarily see myself as like a survivor or whatever, like whatever's the opposite of victim, but I'm more open to seeing myself as just an average person, whereas before I always thought of myself as like the exception to every rule mm -hmm. or that type of thing. Um, but I guess in the past couple of years, I've had a lot of really amazing things happen to me. And a lot of shitty things too, but a lot of amazing things. Um, and I kind of had to look at that and be like, wow, like, I am really lucky. Like, these things don't happen to people who are pieces of shit. So, so <laughs> but I must be kind of okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm kind of okay. <laughs> It's okay to be kind of okay. Yeah. I think you're great. <laughs> From what little I know about you, I think you're wonderful. <laughs> I'm also, I, I feel fortunate for being able to meet you and hear these experiences and having you share them. Um, I think, I think that that's a, I don't want to say common because it's kind of uh, ironic to call it that, but to think that you're the only one going through something or, or no one can understand how you feel. I know I've, I've been there. I've had moments where <laughs> I feel, oh, no, nobody else will understand what's going on inside my head. There's no way I can communicate it to somebody. Um, I must be an exception to this, this rule of normalcy or what a human being typically goes through. When you do find yourself in those situations, do you have any go-tos? Do you do anything to try to pull yourself out of those, I guess, funks? Um, if I feel really alone and that I feel like I have no one to talk to, I look to media, actually. Um, so oh. this is fitting for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, some people will say, like, oh, like, don't listen to sad songs when you're sad because they'll just make you more sad. <laughs> but for me, they actually do make me feel better. Like, I love Taylor Swift because she's one of the only female artists I know who is genuinely writing about her own personal feelings in such a candid way, like the way that I talk to my friends, for example, and that makes me feel less alone. Um, or um, there's a lot of great books out there now of people sharing their own stories of um, depression and anxiety. Um, I think my favorite one that I read recently is called um, I think Boy Meets Depression by Kevin Briel. Okay. Um, it's hilarious and honest. And it, when I was reading it, I was thinking a lot of the time, this sounds like me. And so even though I have never met this person and probably never will, it made me feel like, okay, somewhere out there, there are people who think like me and maybe one day I will meet them. So yeah, trying to find examples examples of where I can see myself in media, whatever form that takes, is kind of where I go when I don't have any like real people mm -hmm. to talk to. I think that's a profound reality and opportunity that exists within the realm of media. 
uh, and one of the biggest reasons why I'm doing this podcast, what would you say the conversation surrounding mental health looks like currently, and do you see that there has been growth um, just the way that we speak about mental health, is there more space these days than there ever has been? And is that conversation changing because of people talking about or singing about or writing about their own personal experiences? Um, yeah, like there's definitely been a ton of progress made, particularly in the last five years since Bella's talk was started. I feel like that's about when the massive shift really occurred. Um, so people can criticize Bell's motives all they want. They did a lot of good with that project. Um, whether they intended it or not, um, it really did um, make a lot of difference. Um, but it's definitely not enough. I think a lot of people think that we have made enough progress, but what people don't realize is that the conversation so far has been extremely surface level. Um, so something that I wrote about on my blog last year at some point um, was this idea that awareness does not equal empathy mm. or mental health literacy. So a lot of people um, kind of know, I guess like a lot of mental health awareness campaigns are kind of the equivalent of the Kool-Aid man just like exploding through a wall being like, mental health, it's important, oh yeah. I love this analogy. <laughs> I, that came into my head a few months ago and I haven't been able to get it out. Like, that's basically what a lot of mental health campaigns are. I just used the Kool-Aid man <laughs> analogy this morning in an email. You and I are on the same wavelength. Continue. Yeah. So, obviously, that's fantastic. So, a lot of people know what mental health is, and that is important. Yep. <laughs> we now know that it starts with the Kool-Aid man. Yes. But we need to move beyond the Kool-Aid man and start actually drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people don't necessarily know, like, the names of specific mental illnesses or what the symptoms of them are mm -hmm. or what treatment looks like, that type of stuff. And that's where we need to start actually educating people about and that's really hard to do in like a social media campaign yeah um, well it's also very difficult when people are afraid to drink kool-aid from a stranger yes <laughs> even we we grow up saying being told not to drink the kool-aid from a stranger so when we have no idea what's in this cup uh, and there are so many different cups there are so many different mental illnesses it's such a large discussion to start tackling it, it, it's daunting. Of course you want to run away when a Kool-Aid man bursts through a wall. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. It's a scary topic, mm -hmm. and I myself, I rack my brain all the time to figure out an idea of how to make this happen. Obviously, I work for an organization that has the power to do something like that, and I haven't been able to come up with anything that would create education on a broad enough level that we need like the only thing I know for sure is that we need to put it into secondary school curriculums but I don't have the power to do that unfortunately um, that's the only thing I'm sure of but in terms of things that we can do right now I I don't know but I know that that's where we need to go um, and it's naive to think that the problem has been solved and I think that by 
educating people a little bit more and giving them more of that mental health literacy um, will start to then create empathy. I've always kind of said that um, the best way to teach people about anything is by using real people, use real people's stories. So that's why I do what I do. Um, I mean, kind of because I just like talking to my, about myself. Um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, if you want to convince someone to care about something, put a real person in front of them who is opening themselves up. It's very hard to not feel something. Um, so, yeah, people need to stop with the whole one in five, blah, 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 because people hear that and they're like, oh, shit, that sucks. But, like... It's a statistic. It's, it's a statistic. There's no emotion there. Um, yeah, so there needs to be a lot more people sharing their experiences on bigger platforms. So I think that the quote-unquote market is actually oversaturated. There are so many people out there doing what I do. So many. What market exactly are you talking about? So, for example, there's like a ton of mental health organizations and they're all competing with each other. Um, wow, competing. Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what it's turned into. It's really, really sad because nobody's working together enough. And so... As a result, it's really hard for everyone to get their name out there, and people are so confused as to where to go, and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, stuff like that, and also on a more individual level, um, for example, like positions like speaker positions, um, there are way, 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 way more people who are interested in doing that kind of thing, particularly who are around my age than there are opportunities. Um, that should be a good thing, you would think. It is. It's like, it's a great thing. But, and I think that what society needs to do with that is take all those people and give them jobs doing that and give them the platforms to do that. Start putting them on the news. Put them in newspapers, magazines, um, TV, all of these larger platforms. I think they should take advantage of people like us and know that they don't have to search far and wide to find someone who's going to share their story. Like, there's so many people. Um, and a lot of people are just sharing their stories on their own personal blogs, hoping to get noticed, so to speak, or doing volunteer positions, like, for example, a Jack Talks program. Um, there's like 50 of us in that program. <laughs> what is this program? Um, so the mental health organization Jack.org has a speaker program where they send young adults with lived experience with mental illness to high schools to do presentations, um, which is partially their personal story, partially like a set presentation they've created about what mental health is. Um, and yeah, there's about 50 of us, and that's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's and here in Ontario? Across the country. Across the country, and okay. there's And we're all between the ages of, I think, 18 and 24. Okay. Um, so, 
yeah, there's a lot of people. <laughs> and do you, do you travel for that? Do you go into schools outside of your community, outside of Toronto, or do people typically stick to where their regions are? Um, obviously, if they can find someone who actually lives in that community, they will use that person, but mm-hmm. I've, I've done a bit of traveling. I've gone, the farthest place I've gone is Collingwood. Okay. Um, but I've gotten opportunities to go other places that I've just had to say no to because of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that, that definitely is something that um, they do. If they get a request from somewhere, no matter how remote the location is, they will try to find someone that they can send there. Okay, wow. Yeah. And that's a nonprofit organization? Yeah. Okay. Um, you said that there are many people who are writing their stories online, are using their virtual existence, other uh, other forms of media to try to tell their stories or connect. Do you have any blogs or um, stories online that you'd recommend would be good places to go to if somebody's just looking to find themselves in another story and to start searching for themselves online, searching for a community online? What, what might be a good place to start off? Maybe even your blog. Um. Well, yeah, please go to my blog. <laughs> this um, is also a chance for you to plug your blog. I'll get all of your, your information to list as well. Yeah, Um, But I think before I started doing my stuff, um, two of the blogs that I love that I was really inspired by was the, the blog S. Um, she does a lot of comedy stuff, but she's also very, very open about her depression and suicide and all kinds of stuff. Um, she has two books out as well. Um, her name's Jenny Lawson um, and Hyperbole and a Half, which is one that a lot of people know about, um, run by Ali Brosh. It hasn't been updated in like three years, um, but she has two fantastic posts on depression that so many people have said is like the realest thing out there. Um, so I highly recommend checking that out. Is that the blog with, uh, it's it's animated as well, like it has um, like stick figure drawings yeah. and it, yeah. I know what post you're talking about. Yeah. I love that post. Yeah. I'm going to have to find it and see if I can contact her and, and share it. I mean, I'm sure she won't have a problem if I share it, but see yeah. if I can connect with her too. That's amazing. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's a part one and a part two and she also has a book out as well um, and yeah, she's kind of reclusive. She hasn't done anything in a few years, like I said. Um, I heard her do one podcast one time. <laughs> her own podcast or a, and being interviewed for being it? Being interviewed for another podcast, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but, yeah, she seems like a very cool person. <laughs> so those are good places to start off for somebody who just wants to go and, and learn what the online community of speaking about this is like. Yeah, YouTube is also good. Um a lot of even larger YouTubers um, who do other things will also speak about their personal experience with mental health. Like, it's kind of a cliche that, you know, oh, creative people have mental illnesses, but, like, it's kind of true. (laughs) Um, You would be really surprised. Um, So YouTubers like um, Zoella, Philip DeFranco, um, Superwoman, um, those whole bunch have I'm gonna have to research these I don't know them (laughs) who have talked about their experiences with various mental illnesses or even just you know really rough times in their lives that they've had Um, and there's probably so many more those are just three that came to my mind Um, 
but yeah, YouTube's a good place. There's also a woman named Katie Morden who runs a YouTube channel exclusively just like educating people about mental illness and stuff. Oh, wow. She has uh, so many videos on like ridiculously specific topics. <laughs> That's useful. Yeah, she's really, really good. Um, she's also a psychologist or something. Um, okay. So she's got, she's got some kind of educational background, but yeah, she's really good. That's amazing. We do have a resident psychotherapist who, um, I mean, as much as our conversations and interviews have been uh, wide-ranging and they look very different from one to the next, depending who we're speaking with, we have a resident psychologist, um, psychotherapist, who is somebody that we continually go back to to delve into specific matters on a deeper level to explore them, and it, which I absolutely love because as much as I studied psychology in university, it's not the path that I took for my career. And, and I found that starting this podcast, starting this project was really just coming from a place of passion. I'm very aware how much I do not know when it comes to the realm of psychology or the technology that's being implemented and trying to diagnose and, uh, create, um, treatment plans for people living with mental illness. But that's, that's the main goal essentially with this podcast is just to create a space for the conversation to grow kind of like a bell media or bell let's talk day, but every day or at least available any day for somebody to listen to your, your blog, your personal blog. How does it differ from your, your other project that you started, your other blog that you started up? What sorts of things do you write about on your personal blog? Um, it's pretty much as simple as I just get more personal with it. Um, on my Speak Out blog, I try to kind of create posts that could be informative or educational in some way for other people. My personal blog is sometimes like that, sometimes just like, oh god, this really bad thing is happening, um, where I don't build like a lesson into it, um, for example. Um, but... Yeah, it's also just kind of a way for me to keep all my work together in one place, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, but, yeah, I definitely, I get pretty real. <laughs> so it's like an online uh, journal or diary, essentially, but available for anybody to read. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's cool. That's amazing. That is very open. I, I want to get back into the whole writing swing of it because I haven't done a whole lot of writing in the past couple of months mm -hmm. um, but yeah right now I'm actually in the process of trying to compile a bunch of my like greatest hits into some kind of book I don't know what I would do with that book but um, yeah that's kind of I think that's my end goal you should self-publish Put it out there. <laughs> People say that a lot, but I, I worry that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I do that. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, however people you, other people are going to take it how they take it, right? That's true. Do it for your own motivations and for your own cathartic experience, <laughs> I say. Um, are you Is writing something that you started doing um, therapeutically to, to work through some of the things that you were dealing with? Yeah. Um... I mean, I've enjoyed writing for a long time, but when I started doing it in this format, um, it was three, yeah, three years ago, um, and 
I had actually just been excluded again by the same group of people who excluded me in high school because I'm dumb and went back to them. Um, and I was having a really, really hard time. Um, and so someone encouraged me to kind of try and write out my story and just try and make sense of it all. So I started out with this one big article of like everything that had happened to me like up until that point. Um, and that ended up becoming the article that I then published in the varsity. Mm-hmm. Um, that Katie found and yeah. contacted you because of. Yeah, but then um, shortly after that, I moved back to the city. Um, from my, I was living at my parents' house for a while. Um, and then I didn't really have a lot of friends in the city. Like I kind of was friends with my roommates, but I didn't see them very often, so I was very alone. So I, at that point, I started doing it to feel like I had someone to talk to. Even though nobody ever commented on my post or anything like that, mm-hmm. by hitting publish, I felt like I was talking to someone for some reason. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's when it really started. And you said that somebody recommended that you start writing about your experiences to get it out of you, um, or for cathartic reasons. Was that somebody... Uh, a friend? Do you ever go talk to somebody professionally? Did you have other resources or areas um, that allowed you to talk about your experiences? Um, the original person who suggested it was um, a friend, but um, ultimately, I, I think, yeah, like at that time I was seeing someone professionally. Um, she was actually amazing. Um, she saw me for free because I was poor and couldn't afford to pay her. That is incredible. She is an incredible person, yeah. Um, so, and I started talking to her about this idea that my friend had given me, and I was kind of like, oh, but, like, it's stupid, whatever. Um, and she was like, no, like, you should see your face when you're talking about it. Like, you just get so lit up and animated, and, you know, that's a sign of passion. That means that you should do it. Um, and I realized that she was right. Like, it's very rare that I get excited about something that involved doing work (laughs) so (laughs) I'm sure there are many listeners who can relate to that (laughs) yeah so ever ever since then I've learned to follow that feeling oh cool Um, and yeah I still don't get it very often I usually only get it when I'm going to talk about myself (laughs) whether it's through writing or I did a keynote speech recently that was like so much fun um stuff like this um that's that's where my passion is, is just getting getting that story out there in the hopes that somebody else can relate. So That's a great endeavor. I, I share a similar um, point of view because I love, I mean, I love sharing my experiences. I, I'm an actor by trade, so I like that spotlight. I like people hearing me. I love sharing story. Um, as you can tell, I bring this book around me everywhere I go. Robert McKee's story. Also because I believe in the power of story. I think it's an incredible tool. And really, all the different sorts of... The forms of media that we have are, are capacities, vehicles for us to inject our stories from one from point A to point B or from person one to person two. And I think that you're absolutely correct to go back, circle back to the beginning of our conversation. 
wherein you said if you want somebody to feel something, put a real human in front of them telling a story, if you want them to feel that empathy, it's not just a statistic that's going to make somebody actually aware of something and then in turn actually understand it. Um, I think that's kind of the story is the pill that can that people can take and, and ha have that empathy afterwards. Yeah, and I think that empathy is really key above all else because no matter how hard we try and educate people, I can guarantee you that when they do come across mental illness, it's probably not going to look like whatever they were taught because it presents in so many different ways. I mean, for example, when I was in high school, I presented as just like this weird shy kid. <laughs> like everyone just thought I was weird and shy. I thought I was weird and shy because um, no one knew what they were looking for. Um, and so I think by teaching people empathy a little bit more, people will be more motivated to be like, okay, maybe this person isn't just weird and shy maybe something's going on. Like, they don't necessarily have to jump to the mental illness conclusion right away, but just that empathy that will make them motivated to find out more about that person before they judge them. Mm -hmm. Or they're weird and shy, and that's great. Yeah, either way. I love the word um, weird. <laughs> I have to admit that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that that's just going to make people better humans, and I think that's really what mental illness community needs is for people to just be nicer um in general mm -hmm. um and I definitely think um the the last speech I was asked to give um they asked me to write it on the topic of how mental illness is invisible and I actually don't do not believe that it's invisible I think that it is visible, it's just that it presents in ways that we don't know how to interpret. And people don't know what they're looking for, including people who might have mental illnesses themselves, like me. Um, so I think that if people do have more empathy and a little bit more education, and they commit themselves to you know learning more and having an open mind, then they'll be able to look for those signs and look for those people who are so hard to see. I mean, it's, it's not invisible. You just have to look hard enough with the right lenses, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so. Well, and maybe, maybe it's not so much um, invisible in the sense where we don't understand what we have, been, what those signs and symptoms are, but that we misunderstand them, and we've been talking about mental illnesses in the wrong way or uh, without the appropriate language. I think that it's still such a young field of medicine that we are exploring, and even to categorize people into having depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, you you are categorizing them, you're putting them in a box, but like you said, every mental illness doesn't present itself from uh, the same way from one person to the next. So while somebody else with depression might share some similar symptoms and signs uh, as you, they might not have all the exact same ones. And in order to figure out what, what it is that we 
are to be diagnosing them with and then to find uh, ways of coping or treatment mechanisms for them, those are also going to be just as diverse and just as different, um, you know, for some people. If they need to go on medication to help for uh, depression, that might be a different situation for somebody else who might want to take cognitive behavioral therapy to help with it. Uh, and, and that's not easily understood. That's just more conversation that needs to be brought to the surface. As you said, we're still kind of at a surface level of our conversation about mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and even people who are educated about it, um, I slip up sometimes. Um, so my partner, my boyfriend, I just found out a couple weeks ago that he has ADHD. Um, he just didn't tell me for some reason. Um, and I was thinking like, okay, but I know about ADHD. I know about mental illness. Why could I not see that myself? Oh. And in hindsight, I'm kind of like, okay, this kind of explains certain things about him. Um, but yeah, he has a mild case and I never would have known. Mm -hmm. And I'm a person who you would say should have known. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hard. I'm not trying to say it's not hard, but I think we need to be way, way better at trying. And I think we also need to ask more questions because that situation never would have happened if, if I had just asked him more questions. <laughs> well, and it's also an onus that you don't expect to take on your, your, not a physician, you're not your, uh, a therapist for him, you know, you're his girlfriend. Right. So it's an onus that you don't need to take on to diagnose him. But it's also, it's, it also kind of harkens back to, to kind of like to almost berate yourself in a way to not pick up on it, that you should have known the should have mm -hmm. people who should like, there's, there's no onus on you to have to pick up on those sorts of things. Like, why, why is it your responsibility to do so? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the other half of, of this, is I think that we need to be more empathetic and observant, but I also think that we need to be more honest with other people about what's going on with ourselves. Um, you know, that's something that um, we had an argument about recently, actually, um, because... I was kind of like, oh my god, like, why, how, how could you not tell me something like that? And I was like, I told you everything about me. I mean, I didn't think that you could realistically say that you love me if you didn't know everything about me. So I made sure you knew everything about me. <laughs> but I, I loved you, and I, and I don't know everything about you. Um, and he was like okay, well, you know enough. I didn't not tell you on purpose. It just, like, genuinely didn't occur to me. Mm -hmm. um, that, like, that, that impulse that I have to just tell people everything in order for them to understand me is not an impulse that he has or that many other people have. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we should be sharing more with other people. And I honestly think that we would all benefit from that we would form way more genuine human connections and that's kind of a difficult question to answer to know who you are on a day-to-day -day basis um would you say that you know yourself your idea your sense of self is 
structured and solid. Yes. Um, that's another thing that I always try and remind myself when I'm trying to be empathetic towards other people is I never realized until recently that I have an extremely strong sense of self and I know who I am. I've always known who I am and I'm really self-aware and um, I have a lot of, I guess, my boyfriend called it emotional maturity. Like I'm really like in touch with my feelings and stuff and a lot of people aren't. Um, a lot of people are very confused. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay and I think that I need to be more sensitive towards that. Um, well, it seems like you're very aware very that you are sensitive to that. Well, I am now, but um, still sometimes we get it. There's, there's situations like what I just described where I, I just don't understand the other person's perspective. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely, I guess, a strong point of mine. Um, is knowing who I am for better or worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I'd say I differ in that sense where I'm continually absorbing different stories and um, seeing little parts of me reflected in, in different stories and then piecing it all together. But a lot of me, I would say, and th- maybe this is... Um, maybe this stems from my anxiety. A lot of me focuses on that which I have not yet experienced, the future, and how I know all of my future experiences are going to change who I am, are going to be part of the story of me. And I think when you focus on the future, um, my understanding of, I guess, the difference between anxiety and depression is that when you are focusing and worrying about the future that can lead to anxiety and if you are focusing and worrying about things that have happened in the past that can lead to depression so I think that that's probably where it stems from like for my anxiety it builds up this uh, lack almost of a foundation of my sense of self I don't feel like I know myself enough because I think that part of me exists in the future (laughs) because it sounds so existentially weird but I think that ourselves are collections of all of our experiences and for some reason in my mind that also includes those that have not yet come to fruition that kind of makes sense that kind of makes sense um I mean obviously I spend a lot of time worrying about the future and I'm well aware that nothing is permanent and you know I am likely to change certain things about myself um but I think that at my core when it comes to my core values and personality that has always stayed the same and probably always will Hmm. um for example my tendency to overshare that has been a thing my whole entire life and I don't see that changing ever (laughs) (laughs) That's good, and you're good with that. That's you. I'm fine with that. I've come to peace with it, yeah. (laughs) I think that adds to this idea of this strong sense of self. Once you find certain things that are common threads of your existence, of your being, and it's it's not something that you disclaim. It's something that you own. I think that's a very beautiful and powerful thing, too. That's something that I have always admired in others because... I have such a fleeting sense of self. That's weird. 
<laughs> I think that also probably stems from the fact that I, I grew up with a, a military father who would move our family around. We all moved three to four years, um, every three to four years of our lives. He would be reposted somewhere. So I didn't grow up with the same group of friends and in the same high school or elementary school, I always had to readapt to a new situation. And it was always interesting to see the differences, or I guess in hindsight, it makes it interesting to look at the differences of experiences that my sister and I had, because my sister would, I remember when we moved from uh, Belleville to Montreal, she had such a difficult time. She had one very good friend. She didn't have a very large collective of friends, and she found it hard to move because that was that was going to be difficult for her to reestablish. She did not want to move. For me, I think the way that I ended up taking that lifestyle into into um, my or, or the way that my personality dealt with it was that it was almost exciting, a new challenge, a new change of location and any problems that I had, if I didn't fit in or people were excluding me, I was like, all right, cool, that's fine. I'm moving again. <laughs> I'll find something else to do. And so we were so different the way that we ended up taking on internalizing our our patterns of moving into who we were. Yeah, I actually wish I'd been exposed to more change as a kid. I feel like that almost kind of fed into my anxiety because now I'm incredibly bad with change and it gives me a lot of anxiety and I think that that wouldn't be a thing if I had more variety in my life when I was younger. Were um, you born and raised in the same town? Yeah. Okay. Um, and my parents moved from my childhood home last year like 30 minutes away, like not even far. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed for so long. Oh. I, I made them leave me at the house um, after they'd already left just so I could walk around it when it was empty and say goodbye. And I just sat in the corner of my old room and cried for like five minutes. And then <laughs> I got in my car and drove to their new house crying the whole way, which was incredibly dangerous. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get in your car if you're having an emotional yeah, breakdown. Do not. I've done that way too many times. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You didn't get into an accident, I'm hoping. No, everything okay. was fine. Okay. Mean, but don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's that's a natural occurrence when you grow up with one house. It's almost as if that house becomes a character in your life. You you do absolutely grow an attachment to it. I, I The only house that I can remember really being upset leaving was in... Ottawa, I believe, and I, for some reason, my memory, memories fail, memories are not always exactly what they are, but in my memory, this was the biggest house that we lived in, and it was like a mansion, it was gorgeous, and it had all these fun, hidden away passages for me to play in, and like, my imagination was at its best in that house, I was like a, like Gus Gus the Mouse in Cinderella, <laughs> that's, that's my, my joy castle, and when, whenever I talk about it and talk about it in that way with my mother, she reminds me that it was one of the smallest houses that we've ever lived in, and I was, but I was short enough to run under our tables with it. I think that's the house that I ended up running 
into the table and knocking myself out. I finally started growing. <laughs> but my my memory makes me remember it as, as something completely different. And that was the only house that I, I miss and remember in that sort of way. Every other house is kind of like, oh, I got over it. It was always different. So it's strange how, how one, an inanimate object can become almost personified in a sense where it's like, it's something that you have a relationship with and it's difficult to let go of. But that also memories, like you were saying, can be incorrect. Incorrect. Yeah, it's so true. And I've noticed that there's a lot of things that I get really emotional and sentimental about that nobody else gives a shit about. So my mom, my dad, my brother, they did not care about this house. They were like, what is up with you? Like, <laughs> like it's just a house. We're moving to a nicer house. What's your deal? Um... And they just didn't get it at all. And my the rest of my family is very emotionally closed off and unsentimental. And, you know, like, obviously I know they love me, but, like, they're not really the type of people to go around saying it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess in that sort of sense, I'm like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I, I One of my grandfathers, um, my, my dad's dad, I remember him telling me, that you know he wasn't really a guy to every day say I love you and um, or, or I'm proud of you certain things and and I I didn't realize that until when I was older if I would have phone conversations with my granddad I end my conversations off with I love you and the first time that I put two and two together about how he doesn't say I love you was when I said it to him at the end of a conversation on a phone call and his response was okay bye (laughs) oh okay that actually happened to me once too that exact thing when I was in high school my friends thought it was weird that whenever my parents would call me they never said I love you um because all theirs did so they dared me to say it to my mom a dare yeah and she like laughed and hung up (laughs) and as a kid I mean when you grow up with that that's your experience it's almost a normalization, but to think about how that might affect somebody or, um, like not to, not to talk about your feelings, not to talk about your emotions growing up or not to say, I love you on a regular basis. I, I I come from a family that is very loving as well, but is also not one where we would talk about mental illness or depression or, uh, feelings in in that sort of way my father's ex-military so a lot of our conversations are just you know what needs to be addressed in this conversation what's factual what was your day like what do you have to do for homework where do you need to go next what's your do you have to go to soccer great like it was more so about facts of the day things that are tangible things that are measured like the conversations that are I guess more more prevalent I would say um up until now I think there is now movement with conversations about feelings I hesitate to say spirituality but um feelings and emotions and and what kinds of what kinds of hardships we experience in that realm I don't think it was something that was very common in our parents' generation or in their parents' generation. Yeah, that might that might be where it comes from. Um, 
because yeah even though I've always been extremely open with like my friends I'm close with my parents now but that only started a few years ago in high school I told them nothing because I felt like I couldn't I felt like they didn't want to hear that they wouldn't understand they would think I was being dramatic and in hindsight they've been like why didn't you just tell us we would have helped you mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't think they would honestly because I had never seen any evidence of that from them mm-hmm. um well so you're a kid it's your parents yeah of course at that stage they don't understand they've never been through it that's that's the mindset when you're at that age I know that was my mindset yeah pretty much um And I actually found out a couple years ago that my mom actually has had depression for like 20 years and just never told me, even though I had been diagnosed with it like way long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, She never ever told me until my dad accidentally was like, why are you criticizing me for not being sensitive to you? Like, I've been dealing with your mom for, like, 20 years. And I was like, I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a can, we're opening. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I was really, really angry with my mom. I was like, how dare you not tell me, at least after when I was diagnosed, that would have made me feel so much less alone. Mm-hmm. And I think she felt really bad about it, and she said she didn't want to tell me because she thought that I then would not respect her as a parental figure and she thought that she had to be strong as a mother and that type of stuff when that is not at all how I view strength. Um, Like one of the strongest adult women I've ever met is actually my friend's mom who um, went through like a really tough like abusive relationship and all of this really really horrible stuff and she's so open about it and just so open emotionally and warm and loving um and I always saw that as being so strong that she had all these like hard situations and is still so open with herself Mm -hmm. um yeah so I, I definitely kind of see where that side of it is coming from but yeah as myself, as a kid, I definitely wish that they had been more open with me about their own feelings about things. Do you have conversations like that with them now? Yeah. Um, I started having those conversations, um, oh gosh, a couple years ago. I can't quite remember why, um, but Yeah, at some point I did. Um, I think it started off slowly when I started doing mental health stuff at university. They were kind of like, why are you doing this? This is a waste of of time. (laughs) Um, And by the end of my university career, they were supportive. But, you know, initially they did not get it. Um, Did they have other plans for you? Yeah, I mean... I mean, my, I had already ruined their dreams for me by, like, not going into business or whatever. <laughs> I was in English. But, yeah, I think they wanted me to do more, like, productive things. <laughs> things that... Economic, like, financially. Money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, little did they know. <laughs> Everybody has make, a different path. Now I make the big bucks working for a charity. <laughs> well, I think it's important to follow... For for mental sake, I think it's important to follow passion. Like you said, 
when you have that look on your face and you talk about something that you're passionate about and that you are starting to guide yourself with that, that's an, that's an incredible strength. That's how I view strength as well. And it can be incredibly difficult in a world that is very business oriented and financially focused um, to do something that you think is, uh, you know, in Gandhi's words, being the change that you want to see in the, in the world. So I applaud you for that. I think that's incredible. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, at the time, I didn't see it as choosing money over, or rather, like, happiness over money, but um, that summer, I actually had to literally choose between a paying government job for that whole summer that could have potentially led to other opportunities um, and my unpaid internship here. And I chose the internship and my parents were so mad. They were like, how could you do that? You just threw away an amazing opportunity. How are you gonna support yourself? Like all of these things. And it, it paid off, but I took a risk and they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> risk that you had to do for yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't even see it as, like, bravery. It's just, like, I c cannot function if I'm not happy. Like, some people have, you know, I view other people who can, like, you know, get through the day working at, like, a boring, monotonous job. Like, my boyfriend, for example, he's a supervisor at Starbucks, and, like, obviously he's not, like, crazy passionate about, you know, Starbucks and coffee. I mean, he likes coffee, but, you know, his job is hard. He does a lot of cleaning and dealing with mean customers and all of that type of stuff, but he does it and he works so hard and is still friendly and nice to everybody. And I respect that so much because I cannot do that. When I worked retail, I was the worst employee ever. I was so bitchy, like I was miserable. When I'm miserable, I cannot put on a happy face. Like I can't. <laughs> so yeah. Well, good me, for you for recognizing that to not me, it in retail. Even feel like a choice. <laughs> I'm picturing that. I would love to see what that looks like with somebody coming into like a, a gap and being like, no, they just don't look good. I'm not going to try to sell these to you because they're not yours. They do not look good on you and I'm not in a good mood. Yeah, that was me. I actually d worked at Old Navy um, for a while <laughs> and it was, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Did people ask you for advice? Were you honest about the way that clothes looked on people, if they asked you. I never, they never put me in fitting rooms, possibly because. Of that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like I, I was usually on the floor, and people would like ask me to go find something, and I'd be like, oh, okay, but like just like no, I'm probably not gonna find it. Because <laughs> our bathroom was like huge, um, that type of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think you're in a great field now. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not client facing. I think that's probably good for me. Well, my experience with you has been very personable. So, <laughs> if you're just doing it for me, then I appreciate. It. I think you're great. No, no, I am, I am genuinely enjoying this conversation. <laughs> good. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Before we do turn this off, I would love for you to plug anything that uh, you want to plug into the episode, and uh, so that I can also put them in the show notes that people can find you. Okay, um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I am the communications manager for a nonprofit organization called Healthy Minds Canada. 
Um, the website is healthyminescanada.ca, <laughs> and um, we have a lot of events in the Toronto area, so if you are in Toronto, definitely check us out. Um, and of course, we have a newsletter and a blog and all that stuff, and you can find that on the website as well. Um, and we have social media. So, um, Do you run the social media? Yes. Cool. Um, I have I have other people who help me as well, like volunteers who work for me. But uh, yeah, I'm, I oversee it all. Um, and personally, um, my website is chelsearichio.com. Um, feel like I should spell my last name because no one knows how to spell it. I would love that so that I can spell it correctly in the show notes. Okay, so that's <laughs> Chelsea with an E-A, Riccio, R-I-C-C-H-I-O.com. And there you can find videos of some of the speaking engagements that I've done, my blog, articles I've written, um, that type of stuff. And if you want to get in touch with me, there's also links to my social media and things on there. Um, if you want to follow me on pretty much anything, though, my username is Chelsea R, like a pirate. <laughs> I'm like the only person who finds that funny, but yeah, that's my username on pretty much every platform. I Chelsea R R R. Three R's. Three R's. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> I was I was picturing many more R's than three. <laughs> I think I have I think I have one account somewhere that's four, but yeah, I think. So. Oh, that's gonna be confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's links on my website to everything. Okay. Um, and then your other uh, blog that you started up back in university? Yes. Um, I started just after university. It's speakoutblog.ca. Um, it hasn't been updated in quite a while, but I did mention earlier I'm looking for someone to take over managing it. So if that's something that you might be interested in, definitely check it out and hit me up. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. It's been a pleasure getting to know you as well. And we're back. Tiny little studio, a.k.a. the shoebox apartment. Downtown Toronto, <laughs> hear the street noise. Everything's musical here. It's actually not too loud today in my apartment. It's because it's Tuesday. Yeah, it's Tuesday. We always record on a Tuesday. Shh. Um, what I want to go back to before we leave off uh, to jump into our one cool thing for this episode is the idea about trusting your gut I feel like I'm doing another shameless plug for just another super fun activity that I do on a regular basis but improv friends Um, yeah where you at improvisers there is a new quote unquote new relatively new company here in Toronto called The Assembly. It's Toronto's first long-form specific improv company and was actually built out of a refusal to let ourselves die. The long-form community, which used to really thrive out of Second City and the long-form program that they had running for the longest time, no pun intended, (laughs) ended up being cut from the program. Chicago, Mm -hmm. essentially, runs a lot of the programs from behind the scenes. And because the long-form program here in Toronto, financially, like on the books, was not succeeding, they didn't bother coming to the city to take a look at what it actually looked like on the ground, what the community was doing. Mm -hmm. I guess what sort of intrinsic benefits were coming out of it. Uh, and the social impact it was having. But they just 
they struck it off the list for seconds ahead here in Toronto. So most of the members and a lot of the vet teams that have been playing, you know, on house teams for Second City for the longest time banded together and over uh, this past year or so created this new Toronto company. Cool. I think one of the greatest things that I found out of it, not only as an actor, but um, something that helped me in my writing as well, was that ability to trust your gut again. You're thrown up on stage and, and improv, uh, for those who've never seen a show, is exactly what it sounds like. We're literally improvising everything. We step up onto stage with no script, no idea of what's going to come to fruition in our scene work. We typically get a suggestion, like a one-word suggestion, or maybe like a location that fits on that stage, and then we make it up as we go. It's it's about building those worlds together. So it's a very safe space to learn how to trust your instincts because you know that the other team members that you're performing with are going to yes and whatever you offer mm-hmm. out of your actions and words mm-hmm. yes and is the number one rule of improv so it's a really incredible environment to be able to learn how to trust your judgment it's a safe environment um learning how to play in that fear that social fear that comes out of you know High school experiences of being gaslighted and uh, and the bullying and abusive relationships that we've been through. That was a really fun personal episode. It was personal. I liked it. As always, if you liked it, go to iTunes and subscribe to us. Or like us on Facebook. Or follow us on one of those two things that you can follow us on. Twitter. And Instagram. The Grams. The Instagrams, yes. I, said, I thought you said the Grams. The Grams. I have my own me. app now. Yeah. The Grams. Like it. Quel est le Grand? Le Grand. Alright, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.